thanks so much for that reading, Auntie Ati. Um, and thanks to you all for giving me such an easy topic to uh, um, bring to you guys this morning. Remember, this is your choice, all right? This is a topic that you guys um, voted for. Um, but if you're here today, if you've walked in today and you have no idea what this topic is about, uh, I guess you can join the club because we're going to learn uh, together. And of course, I don't presume to know everything, um, but I'd like us together today to sit humbly beneath the Scriptures and for our hearts and minds together to be shaped by God's Word. Um, preparing this sermon um, has been really enriching for me, actually, and, and my prayer is that it would be the same for you today. Um, so let's pray. Father, give us spiritual discernment this morning to understand and live out your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I want you to think back to the first time you believed in Jesus. Um, think about your testimony or your story of how you became a Christian. How do you explain it? Um, perhaps in, in your story, someone told you about Jesus. Uh, maybe you did some research. You, you, you wrestled with who God is, whether He was real. And then after hearing the gospel and taking some time to consider that decision, you decided to accept Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. But even though you took these active steps, uh, perhaps in your testimony, you also acknowledge that God was behind it all. Uh, maybe you can sense that even before your moment of decision, God was at work. He was at work changing your heart. And, and looking back, you can see how God has been guiding you through all the ups and downs of life to that moment. In our testimony, we generally say that I made a decision to believe in Jesus, but also that God was behind it all. So this is the question. When you reflect on your salvation, did you choose God or did God choose you? Um, now, I think the answer is both, <laughs> but how does it work? Did, did God choose me because I chose Him? Or did I choose God because He chose me first? Um, this is a debate that's going on, been going on for ages. Um, you might have heard of these terms before, Arminianism, Calvinism. Um, these two positions typically sit on different sides of the debate. So um, Calvinism um, emphasizes God's decision to choose us for salvation, um, while Arminians emphasize our decision to choose God. Um, but let's be real for a moment. When when much smarter people like you and me have been debating this question for over 1,500 years, chances are we're probably not going to be able to resolve everything today. Um, but just to be clear, um, when we do talk about election and predestination, we're not debating salvation itself. We're not talking about the message of salvation because actually both sides of the debate, both sides agree that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That, that, that doesn't change. Um, so instead, the question is around the mechanics of salvation. How did it happen? And, and so we're allowed to disagree on this question, actually, and still share fellowship 
as brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, So just so we're on the same page, let's define what we mean by election or predestination. I I really like this um, definition from the theologian Wayne Grudem. He says this, he says, election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. And so our question is, if God does predestine salvation, is he being loving? Um, So now I just want to put my cards on the table, right? Um, I believe that God does predestine salvation and it is an act of love. And you're actually allowed to disagree with me. Um, So first we'll explore predestination throughout the Bible Um, Then we'll have a look at some objections, and then finally we'll examine how God is loving through it. And my hope is um, that you would see this doctrine not as oppressive, um, but actually as something beautiful that you can hold on to when life is hard. Um, So as we explore the Scriptures, now we're going to see that there's a pattern through the whole Bible of a God who elects His people out of love. Um, In Genesis 3, after God creates people in His image, the first humans, Adam and Eve, they reject God. They want to live independently of Him. And now this brings death and corruption to the world because if God is the giver of life and everything good, then living apart from God must mean death and destruction. And so we see that God casts them out of His presence and leaves humans to their own devices. But you see, the problem is when humans are left to themselves to do whatever they want, things don't get better. Actually, everything gets worse. Um, From this point, we see the first murder in the Bible uh, through um, through Cain murdering his uh, brother Abel. And things only continue to get worse. People don't move closer to God, no. They only move further and further away such that in Genesis 6, this is how God describes the state of a humanity living apart from God. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis describes a people so far from God, Humans as utterly wicked and lost and helpless. It's clear humans here do not have the ability to choose God. We don't have the ability to get back to Him ourselves and it grieves God in His heart. So for us to have any hope of a relationship with God, God Himself must intervene. And the way he intervenes is through election. Um, In Genesis 12, we see God's election in creating a people for himself through Abraham. And so God chooses one person through whom would come this great nation called Israel. So where humans left to themselves only knew death and curse, notice the wording here, God would choose a people to experience blessing and life. I also want you to notice that God's election here is not exclusive, but it's inclusive, isn't it? 
because Israel are chosen, they are blessed by God for what purpose? To be a blessing to all the nations. Election's a great privilege, but election bestows on us a great responsibility to bring salvation to all nations and to welcome them into God's family. Now, let's skip ahead, Deuteronomy 7. Here, um, God explains to Israel the basis of why they were chosen. Why did He save them out of Egypt? And in verse 6, the reason God chose Israel as His treasured possession had nothing to do with them. It wasn't because they were more powerful. It wasn't because they were more in number. In fact, God says, you were the fewest, you were the weakest. But they were chosen simply because God set His love on them and made a covenant with them. Uh, it's it's kind of like marriage. Um, when, when, when you marry someone, sure, you, you love them because of their good qualities, you love them because of maybe it's their kindness, their gentleness, their thoughtfulness. But ultimately, in marriage, you love your spouse simply because you chose to love them. You love them because because you love them. Um, and by covenant, as you make this covenant in marriage, you're actually bound to love them, even through the times when they aren't kind and they aren't gentle, for better, for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, even when they're at their worst. That's, that's what God's talking about here. He's, he's saying to us, I didn't choose you for any other reason than simply because I love you. Um, it's why theologians call election unconditional. He loves you simply because He loves you. But interestingly, I want you to see God's election doesn't just apply to Israel in the Old Testament. God's election applies to Jesus Himself. In Isaiah 42, Jesus is described as God's chosen servant in whom He delights. Um, as Jesus is transfigured on the mountain, revealing His glory, what does God say? This is my Son, my chosen one. Um, 1 Peter 1, Jesus is described as being foreknown before the foundation of the world. So the coming of Jesus to die for our sins was planned before the beginning of time. Isn't this amazing? That even before you were created, God set His love on you, and He planned to rescue you through the death of His only Son. Um, Acts 13, as Paul the Apostle preaches in the synagogue, verse 38, he makes an open call for all to believe, for all to come to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins. And then we see verse 48, it is the Gentiles who hear. And they begin to rejoice, they begin to glorify God, and look at how they're described. As many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. Do you see how God's election is compatible with our decision to believe? In my testimony, did I choose God? Yes. And did God choose me? Yes. Okay, Romans 8, that was read for us before. Um, you would have heard this beautiful verse before, that God works 
all things for the good of those who love Him. Um, We cling to this verse when life is hard, we rightly so. We cling to this verse to remind us that God is constantly working for our good. But have you ever thought, what is the basis of this promise? Why can God say this? It's verse 28. God works all things together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Do you see, our our calling and election is the basis of God working everything for our good. And so keep reading here, for or because, for those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Our predestination is based here on God's foreknowledge. Um, Some say that foreknowledge means that God looks into the future, um, and as He looks into the future, He sees those who would believe in Him, and He predestined them to be saved on that basis. Um, And of course, that would obviously emphasize the centrality of our decision in salvation. But I think that's actually a misunderstanding of this word. It's a misunderstanding of this word, foreknowledge. Because in the Bible, God's knowledge or foreknowledge is the language of love. It's the language of relationship. It's not so much about cognitively knowing facts about people and whether they'd believe but it's the language of God's love and Him loving people. So God loves us in advance, like we saw in Deuteronomy. He sets His love on us and He elects us on this basis. He loves us because He loves us. And in verse 30, look at how predestination, it secures our salvation all the way to the end. Um, As we're chosen by God, we're, we're called, the Spirit changes our hearts and draws us to God. Through faith, we're justified by God through, his, through Christ's death and resurrection. And then when Jesus comes again, we're made perfect, free from sin in our glorification. I think Ephesians 1, though, is actually the, the clearest. Um, Paul says, verse 4, God chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. God's election and choosing happened even before the world was created. So, as you reflect on your testimony, when did God begin to love you? Did God begin to love you at the point when you believed? Paul's answer is no. God loved you before the beginning of time. There has never been a time when God didn't love you. There never will be a time when God will not love you. Verse 5, God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to His purpose, according to God's purpose. And so when God saved you, this wasn't God just rolling the dice. It wasn't Him going, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, aren't you lucky that you're saved? That doesn't work like that, right? This is a deliberate, planned, and personal love for those He chose. And we see the purpose of predestination here is to the praise of His glorious grace. Election magnifies God's grace. It humbles us because we do absolutely nothing to deserve it. And so at its essence, actually, election is not something fundamental 
fundamentally to be d- debated, but it's something to be praised. It's something to be enjoyed. Um, and then finally, Roman, uh, Revelation 13, God paint, uh, John paints this picture of a beast in the end times that will rise up. Many will worship it. Many will be led astray. Those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. And so even at the end of time, the, de- the decisive division between worshipping God forever and worshipping the beast will be who is written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. All right, let's just um, breathe out for a bit, sorry. Um, we've gone on a bit of a tour through Genesis to Revelation. All of that to just say election is God's idea. Um, but, of course, while the reality of election, I think, is clear, it, it doesn't make it easy for us to accept. Um, so let's have a look at some of the objections and challenges to it. Um, the first one, um, if salvation is based on God's decision before creation, do our choices now even matter? Do choices matter? Um, some people argue that if God has already predestined those who will be saved, why bother evangelizing? Why bother telling people about Jesus? Does it even make a difference? But as we've seen, we've seen that God hasn't just chosen the people who will be saved, He's chosen how they will be saved. God hasn't just planned the outcome of salvation, He's planned the means of salvation, which happens through the open preaching of the gospel, the work of the Spirit, and our decision to believe in Jesus. That's what Paul says to Thessalonians, God chose you through the sanctification of the Spirit, through believing the truth, through the message of the gospel. It all goes together. The gospel must be preached. The gospel must go to all the nations and everyone must respond in faith. And actually, I'd I'd argue that God's election makes our choices not less free, but more free, actually. Um, The theologian Jonathan Edwards, he says, humans make choices according to their desire. So God, in electing us, He transforms our desires from the inside. He opens our eyes so that actually we can freely choose Him. Um, For example, I hate durian. I hate durian. I can't stand the smell. Well, this is very controversial. This is even more controversial than uh, this question. Wow, okay. Um, And you know what? No matter how many people in my life tell me that durian is so good, it's the king of the fruits, whatever that means. <laughs> I strongly disagree. I would never choose to eat durian to save my life. But what if God, in His kindness, changed my desires? What if He could open my taste buds to help me appreciate the beauty of this awful-looking fruit? Well, then, if that was the case, I would freely love to choose and eat durian. And I think that's kind of how God works. Not saying God is like durian. But God in election actually opens my heart. He transforms my desires to now I can see His beauty. 
So now I can actually make a choice for God I could never have otherwise made. If we think back to the fall in Genesis, humans have no natural capacity to choose God. That's what we've seen. And through the Bible, how does God describe humans without God? Humans are described as dead in their sin. Humans are described as slaves to their sin. That's not freedom. It's the opposite of freedom. So in God choosing me and opening my eyes to see Him for who He is, I'm actually more free to make a truly informed decision. Election isn't God forcing me to make a decision I didn't want to make. It's Him enabling me to make a decision I could never have made myself. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 1, the evidence that we've been chosen by God is because the gospel has come in power through the Holy Spirit and has produced an internal conviction where God has changed my desires to freely choose Him. Does God elect people to salvation? Yes. Are our decisions real? Yes, both are true. And I want you to see in 2 Timothy 2 that Paul's confidence in election, it actually motivates him to keep persevering, to keep evangelizing, to keep preaching the gospel. He endures everything for the sake of the elect because he knows in his preaching some will respond. Paul says it's all going to be worth it, not in spite of election, but because of election. It's a great encouragement in our own mission, in our own evangelism. God says the gospel is for all peoples, it is for all nations, we must go. And if election is a reality, then sure, some people won't accept our message, but some will. And that's what's going to make it worth all the suffering and the pain. All right, now let's look at perhaps the toughest question of all. Um, Is it fair that God only chooses some. I mean, if God can save everyone, why doesn't He? And um, what about those whom God has not predestined, but has instead passed over in judgment? Did they ever stand a chance? Uh, And it's here we need to be careful. Because in the Bible, God is never to blame for sin. But the responsibility for our sin and judgment falls on us and for our rejection of the gospel. Um, The reformer Peter Vermigli, he gives the reason for this. He says it's because salvation goes beyond our natural capacity. So humans in their natural capacity would never choose God. So for those whom God hasn't intervened to save the responsibility still falls on them and for their sin. In essence, God is simply allowing them to live and respond in the way they wanted. But also, I think we need to examine and re-examine what true justice is. See, when when we question God's justice in choosing some for salvation, we need to ask the question, what does God owe us? 
And actually, why didn't God choose to save everyone? It's actually the wrong question to ask. But actually, if we take sin, if we take the fall seriously, the more accurate question is, why doesn't God just send everyone to hell as we justly deserve? The astounding act is not that God judges people. What is astounding is that He saves and reconciles anyone at all. It's actually unfair in the other direction because we are receiving what we do not deserve. That's what grace is. And if we truly believe in Romans that the wages of sin is death, then God's judgment isn't unfair at all. It's the very definition of fairness in response to sin. But this doesn't mean that God doesn't care. Ezekiel 33, God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He longs for everyone to turn back and to live. The call of the gospel is open to everyone. 1 Timothy 2, God desires everyone to be saved. Ah, But the difficult truth here is that in God's sovereignty that we aren't privy to, we can't know about, His glory is shown through His salvation in highlighting His grace. But God's glory can also be shown through His judgment in highlighting His goodness and His justice. It's a hard word, isn't it? But I think an important point for us to consider, regardless of where we're at, is how we feel about a doctrine should not determine its truthfulness. Just because we don't like something, just because it can kind of make us feel uncomfortable, doesn't mean it's not true. That goes for anything in the Bible, actually. We must first wrestle with whether it's true, and then we must ask for God's help to see it from His perspective. Right, there's so much we could say on this um, complex topic that uh, we don't have time to address today. Um, But let's come back to the original question at the start. How is predestination loving? Well, first it shows us that God's love is unconditional. Um, The author Phil Yancey, he says these beautiful words about grace. He says, grace means there's nothing we can do to make God love us more. And grace means there's nothing we can do to make God love us less. That is absolutely true. Because God loves you even before you were born. You know, as humans, we're constantly fighting for the approval of others. We're fighting for the approval and acceptance from our friends and our parents, our family. And some of you may feel like you've never been able to live up to their expectations of you. But God's election shows us that through our success and our failure, God's acceptance of you has never changed. Why? Because He loves you, simply because He loves you. I want you to see that God's election, it secures your self-worth. Because living in this world, our self-esteem can fluctuate so much with our circumstances, with our performance, our perception, the perception of others. But election assures us of the love and care that God has for us even before we're born. So that now, yes, we feel the weight of our imperfections. 
but we are anchored by the truth that God's love for us has never changed. Um, In Psalm 139, God loved us. He formed us when we were in our mother's womb. We are fearfully, we are wonderfully made because your life is no accident. You need to know you were planned by God before you were born to be known, to be loved by Him. I want you to imagine that God can see all your failures. He sees all your mistakes and shames. He sees your past, your present, your future, and He still chose to love you. That is unconditional love. He loves you because He loves you. Uh, Finally, predestination is loving because it shows that God's love lasts forever. See, I think one of the ways that we've gone wrong in understanding election is we've used this doctrine for the wrong purpose. Sometimes we use this doctrine to speculate, right, about who is or who isn't chosen. But remember, God hasn't revealed that to us. It's not for us to know. And sadly, it's actually made some people question their salvation because they don't know whether they're elect or not. But do you see that that's actually the opposite purpose of this doctrine? The purpose of election is to assure you. It's to assure people who are struggling in their faith that their suffering, their failures, their doubts do not take them out of God's love. Sometimes I wonder um, whether you feel that when you sin that God might just change His mind about you. Whether He might just condemn you. Sometimes um, when I sin, I feel like I'm going to hell and I feel like God might just give up on me for the last time. But election tells us that if God has set His love on you, if He's committed Himself to you before the beginning of time, then nothing can change His love for you. Um, Dane Ortland he tells a story about swimming with his two-year-old son. Um, and when they go into the pool together, the son instinctively grabs hold of his father's hand. Um, the child holds on tight, as tight as he can, uh, as they go deeper and deeper into the water. But as you'll know, the, the, the two-year-old's grip isn't very strong. And before long he notices it's not him holding on to his father, it's his father holding on to him. This is what Ortland says. He says, uh, left to the child's own strength, he will certainly slip out of my hand. But if I have determined that he will not fall out of my grasp, he is secure. He can't get away from me if he tried. You see, as the water gets deeper and deeper, as life is at its worst... God still hasn't lost His grip. Even where we're so prone to sin and to lose our grip on God, He will never let go. Why? Because He's been holding on to you since the beginning of time. He will continue holding on to you into eternity. In John 10, Jesus assures us, no one will snatch them out of my hand. Um, when we visited India recently um, and spoke to some of the people there, um, they shared about how they came to embrace this difficult doctrine of election. And the way they came to embrace it was, to, was through deep suffering. 
um, after some really devastating setbacks in their own personal lives, they had to wrestle and they had to find a robust theology that could deal with the reality of pain as well as uphold the sovereignty and love of God. And actually, they found election to be a deep comfort because if God loved them and chose them in eternity past, they realized that every setback, every painful experience was not God forgetting them. It wasn't God punishing them, that's for sure. It was God loving them as His children to experience Christ in a deeper way. It's why they can confidently say, God works all things for the good of those who loved Him, who are called according to His purpose. And do you see this leads to the confidence that Paul can have through suffering to declare neither death nor life, angels nor rulers, neither the present nor the future, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation can separate you from the love of Christ. So as you reflect on your testimony, as you hear stories of others too, you'll appreciate that everyone's journey of faith is different. People are unique. Everyone will come to Jesus in a different way. But in another sense, every story is the same. Every story began with God setting His love on you, even before you were born. And by God's grace, every story is going to have the same end. That through all the highs and lows, God has never stopped loving you. And He will work everything together for your good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need your help to understand this difficult doctrine. Um, Lord, we thank you that you set your love on us even before we were born. And your love for us has never changed through all the setbacks and disappointments and pain. And Lord, we thank you that your grace holds us until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name, amen.